you will find that it is with great esteem. Uh, it is considered perhaps the greatest treasure uh, the church has as a book. Uh, we have the whole Bible, but Romans is in particular one that has been used in a mighty way. Um, largely, we read many times about the conversion of those like Luther and discovering the Reformation. Um, Augustine, who was uh, heard one say, take up and read, he opens and uh, randomly finds a verse in chapter 13 on the text uh, there of Romans. And uh, from there, the joys of the gospel dispel the uh, licentiousness of his life and drive out all, all that desire. <clears throat> and he has a new desire. God has chosen to convert many people using this book, but the book's primary purpose uh, was not so much to convert, it was to strengthen an existing church uh, by preparing them for uh, the means of that strength, the gospel, to be proclaimed in person. God has always sent men in person to change nations and people, and His commission requires people going. And He Himself set the pace as He came from heaven down to earth and took on our flesh. He could have, uh, hypothetically, uh, we might think, well, He could have done this another way, but really there's no other way because God has ordained that there will be a substitute in our place. There must be a sin payment. That payment must be a perfect substitute, one who would fulfill that promise of Genesis 3.15. So he sent his son, who is perfect, born of a woman, and without sin, and takes on our flesh. And uh, while being fully God, uh, eternally, he is able to bear our sins. And therefore, we have confidence today, even at the start of this, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's reconciled us in his body of flesh, dying on the cross for our sins. And this is good news for the Christians. It's good news for the, the nations and the lost because if you turn to Christ, what happens is God gives you a new heart. He gives you new eyes. He gives you new understanding. And life's altogether different. And I'm reminded when I read R.C. Sproul's um, Advent devotional at the very beginning, he talked about having uh, gone to church many times and heard the Christmas uh, account and been there on Christmas and sung the the hymns like we've just sung of Silent Night, and, and, and he did all those things, but then he became a believer. And then he went and he worshipped the next Christmas, and he said he was just elated by the magnificence of God, and the rest uh, is history. So just amazed at <clears throat> um, what regeneration can do. It's not merely a text we're looking at today, but it's a text we're looking at with eyes that have been changed hearts that have been changed. And so this prepares us to appreciate um, what we have, what we experience on a regular basis that we not take for granted. We have here the letter inscripturated that Paul wrote to Romans, uh, the church at Rome, and it was to strengthen this body, prepare them to be strengthened by the preaching of the gospel in person. So we pick up in chapter 2, and many may be apprehensive already looking at chapter 2 and 3, and as much of what we learn in Romans, um, if you go through a study of the book, you find you have to unteach yourself many things so that you can actually get what he's saying. And there's no less the difference here. There's good news by the end of this text if you keep going to verse 16. That's what we're going to do. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, 
You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And do you suppose, all men, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up for wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He'll, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Well, as we, as we look at this text, what we are immediately taken by um, is in two parts. First, and I really have put this as a title, the shame of the moral man and the uh, glory of the Christian. The shame of the moral man and the glory of the Christian. Now, we begin with the shame of the moral man. If you notice, he starts out with, oh man, and uh, that brings some particular attention since my last name is man. I wanted to make sure things were right with uh, me, myself, and I, and so um, had to spend a little extra time on the oh man part. Uh, but <clears throat> the oh man here, uh, one has told me that oh man here uh, specifically is code name for a Jew. It would be understood of that time that he's speaking of a Jew. Now, I'm not going to accept that just by someone telling me that, but what I find is the text itself leads us to that because if you jump ahead to verse 17, you see, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law. So this is a continued conversation. And the conversation that Paul is having is literally a meditation. Meditation, like we see in Psalm 1, that's promised to those who meditate on God's law day and night. Um, that meditating is not, like we might think, a silent reflection. It is actually that which uh, means, the word means, to mutter, uh, to utter, to speak, to whisper. And so what you have Paul doing here is meditating. He's out loud having a conversation with an imaginary friend, if you would. Not really an imaginary friend, but an imaginary enemy, an imaginary 
uh, interlocutor, if you want to call it, imaginary dialogue partner, someone in which he is speaking to so as to understand the text. So he sets up this sort of diatribe, they call it, um, where he is speaking to this figurative person to carry out a lesson. And so he calls this one, oh man, he, he describes this person later as one who calls himself a Jew. That's important because we learned a true Jew will be like the Apostle Paul who came to faith and has uh, been part of the flowering of Judaism. True Judaism is Christianity. True Judaism has been fulfilled in the Christian faith. And that's why we don't go back and we're warned about going back to the old things, the old shadows. Not the doctrine. We should go back to the doctrine. But the fulfillment of Judaism is Christianity. So there's no need to have any type of Messianic Judaism. There's no need to have any type of Judaism. Judaism has been fulfilled in the Christian faith. Now, we appreciate the fact that um, we have a Jewish heritage. Every Christian has a Jewish heritage that is uh, flowered into what we know is Christianity, and that's what Paul's arguing for again and again and again. When he addresses this one, uh, this man, if you would, and we could even go as far to say uh, in this category would be every single person who relies on the works of the law to save them, right? The Jew uh, first and the Greek all fall under condemnation. And what we want to have, what humanity wants to have everywhere, regardless of the religious confession, is they want to have the ability to be saved on their own terms. They want to be saved by their own do- doing. And so man depends on his works, depends on if he is carrying out good things in his life. And based upon that, he has a certain amount of uh, wishful thinking about his future destiny. Uh, Oh, man could speak again of the whole human race and not just the Jews that rely on the law. But it's not excluding the Jew and it's not excluding the Gentile. For you see that Paul is already stating that if you want the gospel to be for the Jew first and also the Greek, which it is, then judgment has to be for the Jew first and the Greek also. Right? You can't have it. Well, I just want good news for the Jew and also the Greek. Well, you have to have bad news that applies to the Jew and the Greek. Bad news that would require one to come and become man and die on a cross in the place of the Jew first and also the Greek. So there is a congruity between these two, as we'll see. I remember um, as I was talking to my family this week, we were studying throughout history, um, the likes of those like Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was known for his radical fundamentalism and going into places and really speaking to the morals of people. And it was quite easy to fall into that line because there was a moral problem that was going on in the uh, life of the nation. Billy Sunday would preach to don't smoke, don't drink, don't cuss. Not to say you should be doing any of those things. But the point is, is that they were all going out and doing it afterwards. And so uh, Billy Sunday's family is a horrific story. And what is it if, what is it if we get out here and we win the whole world and lose our families? Lose our own spouses, lose our own church families, 
because we haven't proclaimed a gospel that has the power to strengthen the church and to save the lost. What a shame it would be if we just became moral people and not gospel people. And Paul knew it better than anybody. Paul knew what it was to be a moral man. And he felt the condemnation of it. He's not condemning the Jews. He's not condemning the Gentiles. He's preparing them to receive that which would strengthen them both that are in Christ. It's important that we see the tragedy of the moral man, the shame of the moral man, though he may hold his head proudly as if he is the judge over all. It's not that we're not supposed to judge others. We are. But we are to judge people rightly. That's what Jesus taught. He didn't teach for people not to judge each other. He taught them to judge rightly. And how did He tell them to judge rightly? He told them to judge rightly by taking that big plank out of our own eyes so we can see our brother's sin clearly. In other words, He's equipping us to be able to rightly judge people, not to be absent of judgment. In fact, it speaks of the obligation of judgment in the church, speaks of obligation of judgment that will come, that we will even judge angels. And therefore, judgment is a certain responsibility. We must judge between error and truth. We must make judgments and decisions based upon what we hear even today. We must judge, but we have to foremost begin with ourselves. As Rush Juni was famous to say, what's the problem in the world? And he would say, me. And we learned last week in chapter 1, 18 through the end, we see violation of self-governance as the very beginning of the problem. People sin against themselves before they sin against their families and before they sin against their society. But all three follow by the violation of not being able to govern our own lives. And so it's true what Rush Juni says that the problem begins with you and me in our hearts. Then we can judge rightly. But see, the moral man hasn't done that. The moral man has found it quite comfortable to judge everybody around him because he's put everybody under him. He has a very poor understanding of where he is because he thinks he is not, oh man, he thinks he's, oh God. And he sees himself in a position of judging, ju- judging others without first judging himself. And Paul indicates here that this kind of man has no excuse. Notice there's a therefore, meaning that he's already brought all under the wrath that's revealed from heaven whereby they have violated that self-governance and that family governance and that society. Everything is to blame on all men. So he has already spoken to all men. It is a mischaracterization to say that Paul has not addressed the Jew yet. He has. He's not speaking merely to the Gentile in chapter 1, 18 through the end. He's speaking to all men. That's why he says, therefore, O man, I'm speaking to you as well. And that's going to help us by the latter verses, 15 and 16, to interpret this text rightly. Because if you begin to say, well, he's just going after the Jew now, and you don't realize what he said before, 
You're going to turn this into something it doesn't mean. We have obligation to get it right. And we see that Paul gets it right because he goes after and he says, Therefore, therefore, having spoken of the revelation of this wrath that's against all, he says, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He says, basically, you're hypocritical about it. You're judging others but you can't govern your own life. And it says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He counters the supposition of the man that he's dialoguing with. You who judge those who practice such things, yet you do them yourself. Are you going to escape the judgment of God? Now this sort of sounds like salvation by works, doesn't it? It sounds like he's saying that what you do is actually going to matter, and Paul actually believes and says what you do does matter. But he goes after, in saying that about works, that people will be judged by works, all people. He gives a little clue in verse 4 how people are saved. People are saved by the riches of His kindness. His forbearance, his patience, something which the moral man lacks completely. He has no reflection of this in his own life. Therefore, he cannot express it to others. He doesn't know it from God. And therefore, he cannot display it in himself. The riches of kindness and forbearance and and patience and knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's absent from his thinking. The idea that God's kindness and mercy and steadfast love is the, the solution to man's problem is just foreign to him. And it's foreign to him in practice because he does not display that. He does not convey that. Because there's no God like that. The only way he knows of God is intellectually. He knows of God merely by the rules in which not merely that God is made, but that he is made on top of those rules. A legalist comes in a lot of forms and we don't have time to get into all of it, nor do I have uh, the astounding memory to go through all the types of legalists that can be laid out in scholarly works. But let me just illustrate a couple. The one legalist would be like the Apostle Paul, who's the Pharisee. He makes up rules in addition to God's law, outside of God's law. It's assumed by, when we read the very beginning of the Bible, that Adam and Eve, the whole idea of don't touch the tree, was in addition to the law. It was adding out another circle outside the law. If we don't even touch it, then we don't get to it. Again, that's an assumption. I think it's a good assumption that that was legalism at the very start. You also have the Pharisees where they made up uh, numerous rules in order to never violate the law of God. And therefore, when Jesus came, you notice him saying in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you've heard it said. 
In other words, you've heard it taught by your leaders of the day. But I say to you. Now, he's not contradicting the law of God. He is God. He's God's son in unity with the father and the spirit. He's correcting the misinterpretation and he's correcting the additional rules that have been placed on his law. And he's getting down to the heart of the matter. And notice the heart of the matter is the heart here that we realize that he ends up going after his heart. But, but the idea of legalism could fall into that category. You, you make up rules so as to make sure you're not doing that. And some critics have said this. They said, well, there's no way I could follow Jesus because Jesus, um, they would say Jesus isn't even a good teacher because Jesus taught that to commit, uh, if you commit being angry in your heart, it's just the same as being a murderer. If you commit lust in your heart, it's the same as being an adulterer. But that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that the beginnings of those greater sins, adultery and murder, start in the heart right down to the very core and seed of anger and lust. And we could go down the line. That's what he taught. So many people just misunderstand the teaching altogether, perhaps because the pulpits are so weak and explaining or taking the time to explain those things. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught the beginnings of adultery start in the heart with lust. The beginnings of murder start in the heart with anger. And you need, to, you need to deal with sin all the way down to the core. Now, in this text, it actually verifies that idea because um, there's judgment and wrath in varying degrees upon sinners. So if you say, well, I might as well commit adultery because I have lust in my heart according to Jesus. I might as well commit murder because I have anger in my heart according to Jesus. Well, that's foolish. That's folly. The, the idea there that's set forth um, doesn't negate the fact that there will be clearly, uh, throughout Scripture's teaching, there will be clearly greater punishment for those who commit greater sins. Now, Roman Catholics divide up these sins into certain categories as if some could be mediated through a priest and, and some can be taken care of in other ways. But that's certainly not true. That's not the teaching of the Bible. There is, though, a, a reaction that Protestants may make in trying to make all sin the same. And they say, well, this sin is the same. It condemns people to hell. And so it's the same as murder, same as this. That's not what Scripture teaches. There will be those in hell and those who are in hell who are suffering more greatly because of the, the extremity of the sin they've committed. And there'll be those in heaven that are rewarded based on the works they do, how well they do them. God does pay attention, according to the text, to the works of men. And therefore, if one is outside of Christ, and one has sinned against God, and one has done very, uh, the vilest of sins, he will suffer a greater punishment than those who have done lesser sins. But yes, all do condemn men to hell. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what you do and what you don't do. It does matter. And it doesn't mean that what you do as a Christian doesn't matter because it does. Because your rewards in heaven are given according to your works. That's the way God reveals His judgment in the matter. 
So there's a legalist that adds things on, and that requires a bit of that explanation. Now, one of the legalists, though, that attracted my attention and caused a little bit of a chuckle was the legalist who I read about that uh, he would be the legalist that is so on the point that he says it's 40 miles per hour out there today. Oh, let's say 45, 45, it's Bannerman, this road. So it's 45, and I'm going to go 45 all the time, regardless of any circumstance whatsoever. So then what happens is you have a torrential storm coming down, and that man says, I'm going to go 45 miles per hour all the time, keeping that standard no matter what. I'm keeping the law. Well, what is that man doing? That man cares nothing about anybody else outside of his own vehicle, his own self. He's just concerned about himself keeping the law. And what does he do when doing that? Well, he puts everybody else in danger, doesn't he? He puts those around him in danger because he's so intent in going 45 miles per hour, no more, no less, and keeping the law, he would congratulate himself in doing so regardless if he hurts anybody else in the process by doing that. And I think that's a very common legalist. A legalist who really represents, he knows the letter of the law, but he lacks the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law was to love God and love your neighbor, and he fails in both. The law wasn't meant to be used that way. So the moral man is it should be ashamed, ashamed of not understanding the law's intent and purpose and the law's goal for the glory of God and the joy of men. And God's law is good. But it's the hard, impenitent heart of the legalist moral men that stores up wrath because this man knows the law well. And what does Paul say he's doing? He's storing it up. He's filling a barn up with wrath for his future. What a horrific picture. And then it says of God, He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory, honor, immortality, He'll give eternal life. That's what I was talking about concerning the fact that God does reward good works. Well, nobody is seeking good like that unless they're converted. They have to be regenerated. They have to have a new heart. They don't have a hard and impenitent heart. He renders to these who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, glory from God, not from men, honor from God, not from men, immortality from God, not from men. And he says he gives them eternal life. Those are the changed people. Those are the people who understand the kindness of God. He's contrasting and saying, For them, he renders according to the works of those. He renders them eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and he describes here that moral man, they're not seeking God's glory. They're not seeking God's honor. They're not seeking any of those things that the believer is seeking. They're self-seeking. What they do is about themselves. And the moral man stands condemned because his heart, his heart is dark and hard and rocky. It's not kind. 
and patient, glorious, full of joy, peace. It says that they obey unrighteousness and for them will be wrath and fury. He's qualifying what he said. He's making sure. Therefore, O man, don't think you escaped this back in chapter 1. And why is he doing it? He's doing it because what we have learned about the book, he's doing it so as to prepare them to appreciate the gospel coming in person and being proclaimed to strengthen the church and to strengthen the, uh, the apostle when he comes. He said there'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And this is where he says the Jew first and also the Greek, showing if you've got a gospel that wants to benefit the Jew and the Greek, you've got to have judgment that is impartially meted out to the Jew and the Greek. A judgment that ultimately, for those who believe in Christ, is meted out on Christ in our place. There's glory and there is honor and there is peace. For everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And the point is that God shows no partiality. Judgment is impartial. And if it's not, you can never have a gospel based on the electing grace of God. He judges impartially. He saves impartially. The electing grace of God is so glorious Because it is based not on human works to save us, but it produces human works that reward us. It's an amazing thing that God has been so kind to pour out his love to us in in the person of Christ. To shed his blood, the blood of the lamb on the cross. For those who are ungodly, sinners in need of a savior. And here he puts to shame this idea that being moral is going to save you. Morality is defined oftentimes by, or it's actually defined in its definition, by the populace. Morality can change. When the populace begins to accept a certain practice, it becomes the morality of the day. But ethics... Biblical ethics in particular, ethics that flow from the law of God, never change. The standard there never changes. It goes down to the very core and heart and asks the question to all men, especially the moral man, is have they loved God and neighbor? And the only way they can ever do that is if their hard and penitent heart has been broken by the omnipotent God of the universe and changed. God saves by grace and grace alone. And God's grace always produces good fruit. And the beginning of that fruit is sufficient to lay forth the trajectory of every man, woman, boy, and girl who has it. If the beginning is there, then our hearts have the hope the completion will be as well. But we dare not forget What Philippians 1, 6 says, that I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of Christ. Is there a beginning of that in your life? Is there a start of faith? A start of softening? A start of grace? A start of receiving the kindness of God? 
than there is for you the truth that honor and peace will be for you who do good, whether Jew or Greek. God's impartial. All have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. We begin to go to the next section. All have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's just laying it completely bare and showing that there is an equality between Jew and Greek. God impartially judges them all. He saves them the same way. He judges them the same way. He says it's not hearers of the law who are righteous before God. He sounds like James here. But really, he sounds like the Holy Spirit here because the Holy Spirit's the one who spoke these things ultimately that we have inscripturated. But the doers of the law will be justified. And that word, justified, is the key. One is declared legally righteous before Almighty God for the sake of Christ. Justification is based on works, just not your works. Christ's work justifies the sinner. The only way you can ever do the law is if a heart has been changed to want to please God. So that's one of the reasons why in the next two verses, which are by majority interpret it to speak negatively of the Gentile. It actually speaks positively. For when the Gentiles, presumably here Gentile Christians, who don't have the law, by nature do what the law requires, you can't do what the law requires by nature, if you don't have a new nature. Now some will put these words, the wording in the Greek is very difficult to translate out. You could put nature qualifying the idea of the Gentile Christian by nature. You could put the words there, you put it after. It doesn't matter from what I can tell because it's still indicating there's a new nature. They don't have the law so much as a steward like the Jew has, the, the old man of the text, or of verse 17, the one who calls themselves a Jew. That's really, a professing Jew is really more accurately specific of what's being condemned. Not a real Jew. A real Jew is a Christian. So he says, for when the Gentiles, again, presumably Christians who don't have the law, by nature do what the law requires, They're a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. And they show, what do they show? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Well, how'd that happen? Jeremiah 31 is how it happened. It's the new covenant. He promised to write the law on the heart. How can a Gentile now, by nature, do what the law requires? This is not intended, as some systematic theologians have read into it, this is not intended to teach natural law. This is intended to teach the grace of, and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How is it, O oh man, in the argument, how is it that here you judging everybody but not doing those things and therefore storing up wrath for yourself by a hard and penitent heart, 
How is it? Case example that this Gentile over here begins to do by nature what the law requires even though he doesn't have the law. How about that, Omen? He's already answered it. It's the kindness, patience, forbearance of God. They show the work of the laws written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And we need to stop here. What is the conscience? The conscience is not the law. The conscience, I'll go as far as to say, is an even natural law. The conscience is the conscience. He's put in us. But you know, the thing about the conscience is not reliable. Because some people will think that doing certain things are wrong that aren't wrong. Their conscience also could be seared to the point where they don't think anything's wrong. So the conscience isn't a reliable guidance. So. Now, to sin against conscience is neither right or safe, nor safe, Luther said, but the conscience has to be informed by something. And Luther taught very clearly the conscience is only safe when it's informed by the Word of God, rightly interpreted and explained. He stood before the Roman Catholic Church defending justification by faith, defending against the idea that indulgences could not save any and were unlawful. He did that because his conscience was convicted by the Word of God. So his conscience was being steered by a reliable guide, but the conscience itself is not a reliable guide. Because some people can believe one thing's right and another's wrong, and those things can be totally opposite, can't they? Some people think it's okay to do heinous things. They do them without any conscience, we would say. Some people are so conscience-sensitive that any little thing disturbs them. And they're really in a, a miserable mess. Sometimes they're put there by others because of pastors or teachers, parents, husbands, wives that are teaching things that aren't according to the Word of God. They're binding the conscience beyond Scripture. And they're miserable. They're in bondage. They're in a cage. John, um, John Bunyan gives a picture of a man in a cage at a certain point of the interpreter's house that was shown to him. A man who couldn't get out in this woeful mess. And right after that picture, he turns to another picture. And it's a picture of a man that here is wrestling in this very thing his conscience. And he's found there at that point of the account of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he's found there as a final lesson. And I think final lessons really matter, don't they? It's like the last thing he's going to show him, the last thing the interpreter is going to show Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress in the interpreter's house is a picture of this man whose conscience is gripped. And it says that after he witnessed what he did of that man, he said it put him in much fear. And that account grips me because what it 
tells me is that it's not the unrighteous that fear judgment and hell. It's the righteous that start to realize. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now there's a sense in which, yes, we have this peace, this intermingled peace. We will not be judged because what Christ did, right? We have that. But that does not remove, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Save the wretch like me. In that same song, it says there's a grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my, my fears relieved. It's both. It's, it's sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So you have things in your life going on. You have things that make you afraid and scared and sorrowful, real difficult things. We're not there to magnify those things. We're here to be taking joy in our God. It's both. How is it that a Gentile Christian now arises obeying the law by nature? How is that happening? It's a miracle. It's the new covenant. Now you have a man whose conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse him. Now you have a man that shows up in chapter 7 of this book that's sitting there saying, I'm wrestling. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's a converted man. That's a man that has a war in him now. That's a man who's become a fighter now. That's a man who's taken up the sword of the Spirit now. That's a new man. So though it is the minority report on this text, it's the right one. And the context indicates the very fact. Because it's the context of the whole book of Romans that's teaching this. In chapter 9, in verse 30, if you go out there, we're seeing this idea manifest. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. It's putting to shame the professing Jew. Chapter 11, we see it come up. Why do you think he's doing this? Well, here's why he's doing it. Chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know that the Scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, have they, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him, Paul says? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to bow, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. David says, let their table become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, 
This is the same idea he says when he talks about shall we sin to grace will be abound. God forbid. No. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. When Paul writes these words, he wants the Jew to be saved first and the Greek. He's writing them to show and point out to the old man, look, there is one who's obeying the law. You're just talking about obeying the law and judging everyone for disobeying it while you yourself are guilty of disobeying. Real change for you, O man, only can come when a God covers your secret sins. Sins that you think you're hiding, but the omnipotent, omniscient God sees. So it ends with, on that day, when according to my gospel, it's Paul's gospel. Well, I thought you said it was God's gospel. It is God's gospel. Paul's gospel is God's gospel. It's a gospel about the triune God. It's a God who, before all time, Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And the Holy Spirit will be sent to apply the salvation to all. This triune God, the gospel of the of the good news of God, of Jesus Christ, of the kingdom. This is Paul's gospel. He said, according to my gospel. And there's always a sense in which there's a personal ownership of this while at the same time of it owning us. The Shulamite says in Song of Solomon, I am his and he is mine. And she also says, he is mine, I am his. She loves her shepherd because her shepherd first loved her. According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You couldn't want a better judge. You wouldn't want the old man to be judging you. You would not want the one who's a professing Jew judging you. You want the man who died on a cross judging you. That's the man you want. Let's stand together for prayer.